Hi, my name is Sonia Levy. I'm an artist and a filmmaker. My film, Creatures of the Lines, presented on stage, is an artist film and collaboration with environmental anthropologist Heather Swanson. Our work looks at British waterscapes transformation, the way waterscapes have been remade by projects of conquest and accumulation and their linearization via the construction of canals. We wanted to explore how ideas like economic growth and linear progress had profound material effects on the world, how they have dramatically modified the lands and waters around us. Canals' ecomorphological features, straight, rigid, with hard banks, are impoverished watercourses. They are usually highly polluted from remains of industrialization or from urban settings. They also have little or no flow, making them prone to harmful algal bloom. Because of these challenging conditions, only a few top species can live in them. One of the way canals upend freshwater ecologies is by fostering the spread of introduced organisms, through their linear features, which act like highways, pulling introduced organisms which are discharged at coastal ports by container ship deep into freshwater environments. Some of these environmental problems of canals were brought to attention by freshwater ecologists from Lothborough University. The project originally stemmed from, thanks to RADAR, an art organization facilitating exchanges between art and research on the Lothborough campus. Throughout the project, we have attempted to think from the water, from the muddy, the turbid and submerged sites of canals. Most of the film attempts to bring seldom-seen sites of the underside of London waterways, a laborious process involving the development of an underwater camera system to film in shallow and inhospitable water bodies. Guiding the project was a desire to disrupt some of the practices of representations and aesthetics embedded in lines of progress, in the building of straight waterways and the making of the world amenable to the modernist plan. How, for example, Watery world were rendered flat surfaces, and in the case of canals, bare infrastructure for transportation. In place, the work attempts to repopulate and give depth back, both literally and metaphorically, to these watery spaces. Welcome to TBA 21 On Stage. We were listening to artist Sonia Levy. Levy had previously presented, in the third season of Stage, the film Creatures at the Lines, in collaboration with Heather Ann Swanson. In this podcast series, Swanson, Professor of Anthropology at Aarhus University, meets fellow colleague Anna Lohenhaupt-Singh in a conversation that brings attention to feral ecologies with a special focus on oceanic as well as coastal contexts of fragmented processes in connection to Levy's film. We hope you enjoy it. My name is Heather Swanson. I'm fortunate to be a collaborator of Sonia Levy and part of the team that produced Creatures of the Lines. I'm here with uh, Anand Singh, a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz and Aarhus University in Denmark. Um, Anna is the author of several books, including The Mushroom at the End of the World, um, and is also a co-editor of the book Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, as well as a co-editor of Feral Atlas, a digital platform that we'll return to uh, later. Anna is also 
the leader of the Aarhus University Research on the Anthropocene Project. So Anna, thanks so much for uh, talking with me today. I wanted to ask if you could begin by telling us a little about the Aarhus University Research on the Anthropocene Group, since so much your recent work has been inspired by that collective. Thanks, Heather. It's really a pleasure to be here talking to you today. The Feral Atlas project that we're going to be talking about in a few moments really was a project from this Aarhus University Research in the Anthropocene, which we called Aura, uh, a project funded by the Danish National Research Foundation. The uh, wonderful thing about that collaborative project was that it gave the time to explore a new way to work across the disciplines, across the natural sciences, the arts, the humanities, and the social sciences. It gave us time to explore the idea that rather than philosophy being the link or big science being the link, instead, the curiosities of fieldwork uh, as these inform the sciences, the arts, uh, and the humanities uh, could become that bridge that would allow a conversation, particularly about the environmental crisis that we're in today. That if we want to understand environmental problems, we obviously need to know something about what humans have been up to, as well as what non-humans have been up to. All of the disciplines are relevant, but we've been blocked uh, working together by the structure of the university. So Aura was a chance to step outside that structure for a moment to uh, work slowly on the kinds of questions that we could ask in common and to use field-based understandings of environmental issues to build some new kinds of bridges uh, for interdisciplinary work. And one of those turned out to be this feral atlas. So can you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about Feral Atlas um, and also how it emerged um, from the Aura Project? Because on one hand, the Aura Project um, was very much a field-based initiative and Feral Atlas operates largely in a digital space. Can you talk to us both? Can you give us a description of the Feral Atlas Project? And then also, how did it emerge out of the Aura Initiative? Feral Atlas is a digital project uh, published by Stanford University Press and available at www.feralatlas.org. Hundreds of collaborators across the sciences, arts, humanities, and social sciences work together on this project. And at the center of the team are my co-editors, Jennifer Dager, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Faith A. Joe. And they need real acknowledgement uh, as the co-creators of this work, Feral Atlas. It collects 79 field reports on empirical field-based observations of very many different sorts of uh, what I'll come to in a minute, the feral ecologies of the Anthropocene. It's more than a collection of field reports. It's also a way of understanding the Anthropocene. For us, we define the word feral as uh, non-humans that are shaped by their interaction with human infrastructures, but outside the control of the designers of those infrastructures. So non-humans have through their own 
agilities uh, come into relationship with human projects at the same time as they're out of control by humans. We believe that studying those feral ecologies is necessary to knowing this time of environmental danger that sometimes is called the Anthropocene. We believe that involves all the different disciplines in the sciences, arts, humanities, social sciences, that they all have to be involved in telling the histories and the ecologies uh, that uh, make up the social ecological patches of the Anthropocene. How did this come out of Aura? It started quite humbly. Uh, we imagined a kind of a field uh, reports a chance for all of the members of Aura to talk about their projects. But every time I went to a conference, everyone at the conference, when I mentioned this, said, oh, I've got a feral atlas story for you. And so the project snowballed and more and more people contributed their empirical reports. And one thing led to another. And that's how we got up to the 79 reports. If we had allowed the publication to uh, stay off for another year, we surely have twice as many reports. So the project gathered itself, as it were. Uh, we also very concerned to include both social justice issues and environmental sustainability issues. So this is a project that brings together social and ecological kinds of concerns. What is a feral ecology? Uh, what produces a ferality and a feral ecology? It's come to my attention that in many European languages, there isn't a term like feral, that we are stuck with the term sauvage, which could mean wild, for example, but that there isn't a separate term for feral. So it's probably worth starting with the English uh, history of the term, which refers to domestic animals that run away and go live by themselves. For example, a pig raised on the farm, escapes from the farm, goes to live in the forest by itself. That's a feral pig. Uh, borrowing from that usage, we've stretched the term to refer to these non-humans, living and non-living, that are involved, deeply involved with human projects, but not under the control of humans. So a crop or uh, an animal on the farm, these are not feral uh, non-humans, but uh, if they go and proliferate by themselves somewhere else, that's when they become a feral ecology. We want to argue that a set of uh, programs for changing the surface of the earth, its land, its water, its air, particularly in the last 500 years, has made affordances for non-humans to become part of these feral ecologies that uh, these changes that were wrought by these um, projects of changing the earth were so radical that non-humans were forced to either get involved with them or die out completely. Uh, so many non-humans become what I think of as feral collaborators of the Anthropocene. That is, they uh, become part of the programs of making the world difficult, not only for humans, but for many living things. I, you could consider the anthropogenic carbon dioxide that's produced from burning fossil fuels to be a feral effect of burning fossil fuels. It's an extra anthropogenic carbon dioxide that, as you know, uh, causes global warming.
we use the term infrastructures for the physical uh, project tools that are uh, there that are transforming the earth. For example, in the carbon dioxide uh, example, the factory that's burning fossil fuels, that's producing extra carbon dioxide, that would be an infrastructure for us. And we think that imperial and industrial infrastructures have had really radical feral effects. That's extra effects that their designers didn't necessarily plan, whether they knew about them or not, they weren't the purpose. And these feral effects taken together have caused a time of uh, radical environmental danger that we call the Anthropocene. So why is it so important to tell stories where humans are not in control? Well, I think in both the sciences and the humanities, and I'll include the arts there with the humanities for just a moment, there have been very established conventions in which humans are the movers of history and non-humans are both passive and in a weird way, static. They're passive because they're tools or resources or symbols for humans involved in histories. They're static because even with the kind of evolutionary theory that was used in the 20th century, once they got their species nature, uh, non-human living beings just stayed the same until perhaps they went extinct or perhaps a new species involved, but they just reproduced more of the same. So because of the passivity on the one hand and the static nature of non-humans in the imagination of the academy and uh, popular culture, uh, the we uh, didn't know how to tell stories of uh, non-human action, except perhaps children's stories or science fiction stories. But when we tried to tell serious stories, non-humans were reduced to pawns of human activity. So I, there's been a movement across uh, the environmental humanities and sciences to change that, to uh, look at the ways that non-humans are subjects of history rather than merely objects of human actions. Non-humans are also transforming in that same time scale. And through their transformations, they become protagonists of histories with or without humans. But those that are most closely aligned with humans, but yet we can see how they are changing history themselves might be these feral organisms um, that are the subject of feral atlas. Feral Atlas foregrounds questions of structure and systematicity in its attention to both infrastructures and ecological relations. The limitations of thinking structurally have often been critiqued in the humanities and social sciences, as have the limitations of thinking systematically uh, when systems are seen in mechanistic terms. How does Feral Atlas engage structure and systems in new ways? A system is a somewhat systematic set of relations. And I believe that we do systems thinking in that loose sense all the time, whether we know it or not. We're always talking about systems, uh, even if we're not imagining it within the quantitative modeling practices. So for example, if we talked about capitalism or about families, we're already positing these somewhat coherent sets of relations. So systems 
slip out of our mouths without us even knowing it. I think that's a good starting point about uh, the ways that we can uh, adjust what counts as systems thinking to look at the vernacular habits we already have for recognizing systems without uh, assuming that every uh, modeler has the same assumptions that we do. One of the pieces of systems thinking that I think we need for uh, thinking about environmental catastrophe is what I think of as systems time. When we think of a system, again, that's a somewhat systematic set of relations, uh, one of the things that helps us think is everything could change and then we'd be in a different system. The systems theorists call this an alternative stable state. But with or without that piece of terminology, everything changes. We also use that same thought experiment, as it were, about systematicity when we're looking at a lake, a clear lake, and all of this excess uh, nutrients are flowing into the lake from agricultural chemicals. And the lake is still clear and beautiful every day. And then one day comes along and the lake becomes muddy and algae are growing in it. And there's not so much oxygen and the fish die and the water plants that were there before die. We see a radical change in the relations and that's a temporal issue. Everything changes. That's the temporality. I think we need that to understand perhaps what you might call Anthropocene hotspots, that is patches of the Anthropocene that have undergone these radical changes uh, from one system's uh, kind of ecology to another. So I believe we really need that to study our times right now. A use of understanding systems that can work into the kind of work we need on temporalities. We've been talking about this issue in the core team of Feral Atlas recently, and we're calling what we're doing the uh, Apache epistemics. That is, we've been arguing that the Anthropocene needs to be understood in its patches ecologically and socially, uh, but also perhaps in its knowledge practices. That knowledge practices involving juxtaposition, challenging, overlap, bridges, uh, many kinds of ways that different patches of knowledge can work together. Uh, and so we ask, on the one hand, how to bring together varied uh, kinds of commitments to the empirical, various uh, conventions of empiricism from indigenous understandings of uh, the landscape to uh, uh, scientists, poets, artists, uh, historians, etc. When we do this, we're trying to create a productive role for each of those conventions of empiricism. For example, in bringing in the arts, we hope that the arts aren't just illustrative on the one hand or aesthetic expressions on the other, but instead that they might join this search for a critical description of the Anthropocene by taking on the challenge of getting the facts right and getting the story in the kind of detail that the viewer might be able 
to uh, learn from it. So we've tried very hard to uh, work with artists, uh, including Fei-Fei Zhou, who's a member of our team, who's an artist and an architect, to create kinds of representations from collages to um, paintings, uh, to what we call flow maps uh, that show social and ecological processes uh, in ways that without the visual representation, we couldn't understand. Uh, we also have uh, musicians who are doing that kind of work as well. But again, uh, trying to get the material right rather than just an aesthetic representation of it. One of the challenges has been uh, the strong conventions in both the arts and the natural sciences for work that's transcendent, that is above history and place, uh, that uh, work that shows its importance through a pure aesthetic, in the case of the arts, or a pure factuality in the case of the natural sciences. We're hoping that the presence of the historians and the social sciences will help ground the collaborations that we're working in, in a real uh, uh, engagement with the particular histories and places that we're involved in, because we believe that commitment to place and time is central to social justice issues and to getting the Anthropocene right in our understandings of it. So uh, rather than transcendent aesthetics or transcendent facts, we're looking for grounded uh, engagements with the world's that histories and places reveal to us. And th th there's room for very important interdisciplinary collaborations there. How do you navigate the complexities of telling the kinds of difficult stories that you engage with, uh, both in Feral Atlas, as well as in other aspects of your work? It, it was one of the big challenges to do Feral Atlas was to tell those difficult stories. As you mentioned at the beginning, I wrote a book about mushrooms called The Mushroom at the End of the World. And that book is about a comparatively benign ferality of a kind of gourmet mushroom that grows up even in places that humans have degraded. In reaction to some of the readings of the mushroom book, which I found unrealistically hopeful, I wanted to do a project on how do we tell difficult stories. And a lot of my colleagues warned me. They said difficult stories can paralyze readers. They just make you want to go home and go to bed instead of taking action to change the world. And so I took on that as part of the challenge. Is there a way to tell difficult stories that doesn't make people give up, but instead makes people, in Donna Haraway's phrase, stay with the trouble? How can we make people stay with the trouble? Uh, in Feral Atlas, our goal was to tell terrible stories as beautifully as possible. Not all the stories in Feral Atlas are terrible. There's some, like the mushroom story I was just mentioning, that are quite benign. But many of them are terrible. And still, through the use of writing, arts, uh, presentation, um, and the digital magic that we bring to it, we're hoping that we have presented these stories in a way that readers will stay engaged and want to learn more and want to think about solutions rather than 
to abandon the material as hopeless. How does a notion like uh, precarity, uh, both as a notion that brings forth uh, multi-species interdependencies, but also the uncertainties of our times, inform your research? Well, this brings me back to the book that I wrote about uh, mushrooms that I just mentioned, The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. There, I lean very heavily on this notion of precarity, and I use it for both humans and non-humans. For humans, it's a description of one of the things that became apparent uh, over the last 30 years, which was the lack of stability of modernity, which promised us stable jobs, welfare states, society was going to take care of our needs. But in fact, more than ever, we're aware that that isn't working, that uh, in the United States, for example, most jobs do not have benefits. Many people do not have health insurance, that uh, there are no government pensions, that this kind of state of being on your own is one of the things that we could call precarity. But I also use the term precarity to talk about all those non-humans that are threatened by the imperial and industrial infrastructural projects that have been causing so many feral effects that many species are disappearing across the world and the many others are in a state of deep precarity. So this notion can bring together some of the uh, vulnerability of both humans and non-humans. And as a theoretical tool, it then makes us want to think about our interdependence, the ways that just trying to survive as an individual is not going to work out, uh, that precarious means that you need to lean on others. We are in webs of interdependence. And so perhaps we can't afford to break those webs that instead uh, we might have to nurture particular kinds of webs of interdependence, both across our human relations, but also between humans and non-humans, and to also allow those, for example, that we see in forests among different kinds of non-humans. We know you've had a chance to see Creatures of the Lines. Uh, as a general opening, uh, what did you think? Well, the thing that's most amazing to me is the uh, underwater photography. I've seen underwater photography before, for example, in a clear ocean where you're seeing a coral reef or even in a clear river or lake where you're seeing a fish. But I don't think I'd ever seen before the muddy, weedy uh, underwater scenes of a canal. That was quite amazing to me that the texture, uh, the feel of that underwater space uh, was quite astounding. And, you know, when we were just talking about how to tell difficult stories, that uh, I sometimes think of the work of Feral Atlas as trying to create wonder in the midst of dread. And Creatures and Lines really does that, is to try and create wonder in the midst of dread, that you see these degraded uh, uh, kinds of ecologies of a canal and it's still wondrous, spooky, moving, even as it also looks dangerous. While much of your research is focused on terrestrial worlds, your new project, 
Seacoast takes you more directly into watery spaces. Can you give us a brief description of the Seacoast Initiative? And perhaps can you say a bit about what makes coasts and waters distinct from terrestrial spaces? Well, Seacoast itself is a center for Southeast Asian coastal interactions. It's as a center, we do things like hold seminars and host talks. And we also develop research projects that collaboratively bring us into things that we couldn't do alone. So one of them is a project called Fragmented Porosity, which also, like some of the projects we've just been talking about, is an art-science collaboration. Uh, and that my colleague from Feral Atlas, Fei-Fei Zhou, is working with the Seacoast team to think about the changing shorelines in terms of the a kind of formal analysis of porosity. Uh, we're working in Southeast Asia, so an area of the world known for mangrove forests, coral reefs, and other ways that land and water interpenetrated with each other. But during the colonial period, a lot of uh, infrastructural work was done to separate land and water, that it was imagined that economic efficiency, military readiness, uh, colonial governance could best be done through separating the land and the water. And so uh, canals were built, uh, harbors were dredged, eventually seawalls were put up, and today land reclamation projects extend the land push back the water. All of these things are very much an active part of sea coastlines. As in some of the other projects, uh, we're interested in the coming together of social and natural histories. For example, those porous uh, coastlines with their mangroves and their difficult uh, river deltas were wonderful places for the small boats of pirates and smugglers. And so one of the reasons that the colonial authorities thought it so important to cut them off was uh, because these small boats threatened the ships of the colonial navies that needed these giant dredged harbors. So there's a piece of the social history, but also one that uh, has to do with natural histories uh, in that the demise of the mangrove forests which were the nurseries for all kinds of fish and shrimp and much of the sea life uh, that spread far beyond the shores into the ocean. Why focus on coasts rather than, say, oceans as such? What's so special about coasts? I think one of the great things about focusing on coasts is it's a place for that interdisciplinary work that I have come to value so much, uh, where we can look it's social histories and natural histories. We can use the arts and the sciences uh, to uh, work together on our project. I mentioned that Fei-Fei Zhou was joining us to offer a spatial analysis of coastlines. And particularly, the meaning of the term fragmented porosity is all those infrastructures interrupted coastlines that were mainly uh, characterized by porosities and they changed the nature of the porosities that remained. So we believe that spatial analysis will help us understand coastlines that have been reshaped by uh, infrastructures. 
there's a tendency to perceive oceans and watery spaces as immersive and liberatory spaces, as spaces of otherness and untethering. How can we work towards both recognizing ocean specificities and differences, but as well as account for the role of the ocean in terrestrial ecosystems? Or to put it otherwise, what would it mean to reground oceans? I have a student, Eda Tarak, who is finishing a dissertation on what you might call the whole ship method of understanding the ocean. That ships were understood within this rhetoric of the freedom of the ocean, often written into law. And the idea was that ship itself was negligible. It just brought things from place on the land A to place on the land B. But in Ada's work, she sees the ship as itself carrying all of those barnacles, sea worms, uh, ballast water, invasive species, uh, rats, uh, all kinds of organisms come with the ship, things that were neglected and erased through that idea of the freedom of the ocean, that they weren't built into our understandings of what oceans could do. But by looking at the whole ship, that is, a ship as a multi-species kind of site of activity, one can see that the ship itself changes ecologies through all of the stuff that it's carrying from one part of the world to another. And actually, that comes back perfectly to the Creatures of the Lines project as well, because it's precisely that kind of multi-species shipping configuration that's part of what comes to transform these inland waterways in England that are at the heart of the film itself. And I wanted to ask you if you could just say a little bit more about the notion of fragmented porosities particularly its relations between like the particularities of the coastline and the global political economy. I should say fragmented porosity is very much in process. And when we started it, one of the things that made us call it fragmented porosities was the recognition that on the one hand, there were lots of people studying mangrove uh, forests and lots of people studying land reclamation projects, but nobody studied both. That to look at how coastlines were being affected uh, by the uh, separation and fragmentation of porous and non-porous kinds of parts of the coast seemed to us a really important project. And one, for example, where if you were looking at um, colonial Saigon in, in today's Vietnam, uh, there were mangrove uh, forests nearby, and these were always the place where the pirates and the rebels I would hang out. So the adjacency between the capital city and the place where the pirates were seemed really important in a political economy kind of way that doesn't get recognized enough. But as we started the research, uh, we also uh, came into another set of realizations. And here I'll talk about uh, some of the research of Azahira Suhaimi, who's uh, working on the Johor Straits, that is, that part uh, where Singapore and Malaysia abut each other with a big strait in the middle. And uh, she, among other things, has been studying an indigenous people who have always lived along that straits and for whom the porosity between of the water uh, land boundary was the most life-giving 
part, the basis of their livelihoods, and understood as something that brought humans and non-humans together. After all, we are ourselves a porous water, uh, solid kind of uh, boundary uh, or colloid, I guess, uh, mixture of solids and liquids. When women gave birth, uh, the, the placenta was hung in the mangrove swamps to give a sense of the life-giving nature of the swamps. And they recognized it as the place of the seeds of all the living things that on which they made a living. But since colonial period, these porosities have changed. The area is still very porous, but now all of the nutrients that are stuck on top of commercial plantations are draining into the swamp uh, and uh, dams have been built on all the rivers to create irrigation and electricity and the, um, the spurts of fresh water that are brought into the um, straits change the uh, possibilities of life there. And in the combination of these spurts of fresh water and the overflow of nutrients, harmful algal blooms have come to become a very serious part of life in the straits. And they kill off the fish and they kill off uh, much of the life on which not just indigenous people, but the people who've come to live there since uh, make a living. So the porosity has changed. The porosity has been transformed. Perhaps you could see it as opening to a kind of world systems of flows of harmful chemicals, purposes like dams that are bringing resources elsewhere to other places, that in that opening up this porosity, uh, it becomes a global frontier with all of the dangerous things that uh, that implies. And indeed, uh, invasive uh, mussels have colonized this area from the ballast water of ships and are, are ruining the indigenous uh, mussel cultivation uh, livelihoods that people had there before. And many other ways that this this life-giving porosity has been transformed into a dangerous kind of agency. For more riveting content, please check out TBA21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org. This podcast was produced in collaboration with TBA21 Academy in an episode curated by Maria Montero Sierra. TBA21 on stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thiessen-Bornemitzer. Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Project manager, Nina Speranda. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Audio editor, Alvaro Tior. Theme music, Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.